Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This is another podcast of World Wide Wave, the international LGBT news and current affairs show, every week on Australia's first LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. All right, well, let's kick off with the obvious question. What is the pink line? Um, Matt, the pink line is a, a concept that I use to describe the way the world has been defined and described and divided in an entirely new way in the 21st century. Um, a line on a geopolitical line on, on one level between those parts of the world that have become more inclusive and affirming of LGBTQ people. And on the other side of that line, um, those parts of the world where in backlash, both legislation and culture has become increasingly homophobic and transphobic, almost as a reaction to what's happening on the other side of the line. So on, on that level, the pink line, um, you know, runs between countries. Uh, at the moment that we're doing this interview, it, it runs very sharply between Russia and the Ukraine, between um, Putin's sphere of influence and the EU's sphere of influence. And, and in fact, the, the way that Vladimir Putin began this war with the Ukraine in 2013 uh, when the Ukraine was uh, wanting to join the European Union, was through a campaign that said EU equals homosexual marriage, or put more graphically on billboards um, all over Kiev at the time, the way to Europe is up the ass. Um, so this was a way that Putin and Russian nationalists chose to define a kind of decadent, neo-colonial, expansive, liberal, Western, secular society, uh, that being a society that protects LGBT rights or that, that gives rights to these perverts and freaks. And in that way, um, people on Putin's side of the line were drawing the pink line over the old Iron Curtain. On the other side of the pink line, we might find people such as you and me, um, who, in the name of international solidarity, might feel that what um, constitutes uh, the most um, uh, sophisticated and fairest society is, is a society that grants rights to people like us, and therefore we want to encourage or even impose this idea on other countries. Um, and perhaps we have this idea that we want to rescue or save people on the other side of the pink line, um, who might be struggling and suffering. So we, we might have our own political agenda, which makes us feel better about who we are and how we are in the West and how we are the most advanced societies compared to other societies, which, which sort of work along different trajectories when it comes to understanding sexuality and gender. But the pink line as well, I think, if I can just say one more thing about it is, I think it doesn't only define countries, it runs through countries as well. Um, see how the culture wars play out in a country like the United States, which is on so, on, on so many levels a, a leader of, in LGBTQ rights, but where there are these culture wars that were first about whether 
gay people should have rights and now about whether trans people should have rights. And the pink line, I think, also runs very importantly between a sort of um, a virtual existence where you can sort of log on to this kind of global digital identity and find other people like you and and develop an idea of what it means to be gay or lesbian or trans or queer. But there's a line you cross when you look up from your smartphone into a pink line that you cross when you look up from your smartphone into the eyes of a punitive parent or a state that says that what you're doing is illegal or a a church that says what you're doing is... um, or a masterpiece of what you're doing is, is, is immoral and sinful. That's a pink line too. There's a whole lot there that and I want to go into detail on a few more of those things, but the, the speed of progress in LGBT rights has actually been very fast. I mean, we've had very, very big changes in, you know, just over 50 years. Why is it so fast? I think it has a lot to do with globalization and the moment at which this happened. So, um, if you like civil rights or, or anti-colonial rights, the rights to self-determination or feminism happened in eras where time literally moved more slowly. Um, the, this latest iteration of a, of a human rights movement, LGBTQ rights, has happened at a time when the world is moving faster than ever before, primarily because of the digital revolution. Of course, of course, what I just said about the way um, you can find out more about this stuff or join um, in a way that was impossible for, for a gay boy of my generation growing up in the 1970s, um, isolated. So it's the digital revolution, but it's not only the digital revolution, it's the other vectors of globalization too. It's mass migration. It's, it's, it's how quickly um, people can move from one zone to another either as economic migrants or as refugees or as perhaps students. I mean, the number of people who leave African countries to study in Europe, and while they're in Europe, they discover a community that enables them to express who they are, and then they have to, then they come back to Africa with these ideas. As the father of my Palestinian friend Tarek said to him, Cambridge made you this way, meaning Cambridge University. Um, there's also the rapid urbanization that's happened, particularly in not, not so much in the West. That urbanization happened a while ago. But, um, if you look at how quickly, uh, the cities of Asia have grown, India, China. And what happens is when you leave, um, the countryside to go and work in the city, you in a way are uncoupled from the feudal relationships of the countryside, from, from the patriarchy. As you enter a capitalist society, you become valued more for your productivity than your reproductivity. No one really cares what you do with your libidinal energy so long as you contribute economically. Your family back home might also give you a pass for marriage if you are um, contributing financially to, to the family coffers. Uh, commodity capitalism has a huge amount to do with this too. The way um, multinational corporations such as Google or Coca-Cola or Starbucks have these sort of inclusive values and, and export these ex- inclusive values globally. The way gay culture has, has spread internationally, whether it's through those um, brands that I'm, mentioning or through popular entertainment, through television, through shows like Will and Grace or Modern Family that, that anybody can pick up anywhere in the world if they have, um, if they have a satellite television. 
you'll, you'll find this funny. Um, we have on, on Netflix, the, the wonderful Melbourne um, comedy, Please Like Me, is available in South Africa. Yes. And, um, and I had, a, I had a, a fascinating conversation with the mother of, of a black gay man in South Africa who was telling me about how she had come to terms with her child's sexuality. And she said that he forced her to watch Please Like Me with, <laughs> with him. And she struggled a little bit with the sex, but she loved that. I forget his name, Josh. Josh she loved yes, Josh, Josh so much that, that she decided, and she thought Josh was a lot like her son. And she could see that Josh's parents really loved him. And, and that helped her come to terms with her son. I mean, there you have global entertainment, digital culture, kind of a, a, an object lesson in how it has made things happen so quickly. And those personal stories really do underpin your book. You didn't just do sort of like these one-off interviews. You followed their lives over a number of years. Why was that important to you? Look, I think for two reasons, Matt. Um, firstly, because, you know, I'm writing about people who, who live on the pink line in various countries and who, because they live on the pink line, find themselves defined by others. You know, whether it's on the one side of the pink line saying they are sinners or, or, or foreign agents and, and need to be expelled, or on the other side of the pink line saying, you know, there are people who are need who need our help and maybe need to be rescued. It, it's very hard for them to find their own voices with all that kind of geopolitical static happening around them. And and I felt very strongly that if I was going to write about them, but you know, I'm writing about them. They're not telling their own stories. I'm I'm the the kind of vessel. I felt I needed to know them as, as well as possible. Um, and, and that meant knowing them over a period of time, you know, as much time as was humanly possible, given the constraints of, of time and budget that I had. So that was the first reason. But the second reason is, is that most of the people I write about, as you'll know, if you've read the book, are younger people. And I wanted to watch how they were changing and growing and how their self-definition was growing over time in this absolutely critical decade when the world was changing so much and, and how they were changing, how their societies were changing and how the way their societies were changing and the politics was changing, how that was affecting them. So, for example, it was fascinating to, over, over the course of nearly a decade, seven years, um, remain close to a group of transgender people who call themselves Kotis from southern India, from Tamil Nadu province, and to see how their identity changed and became politicized over time. They began with this definition of Koti, which is a sort of cultural and even religious identity. But by the time I leave them at the end of the book, they are very proudly and fiercely what they call themselves as TGs, which is an, an Indian way of saying transgender. And what's happened is, is that a, a social and cultural identity has morphed into a, a, a biomedical identity, sure, and also a political identity. And what's interesting to me and what I track in that Hijra chapter in particular is what happens to the age-old kind of local or regional identities when this new globalized um, biomedical or political identity starts um, imposing itself or, or gets it, let's not say imposing itself because because that makes it seem like the people taking it on have no agency, let's rather say, gets adopted uh, by, by people whose identities are constantly changing in a hybrid way. So, yeah, those are the reasons why I, I took my time over this. 
There was one story that caught my attention, which is a gay couple in the Middle East, one Israeli, one Palestinian. Tell us a bit about the complexity of their relationship and and how they walk that pink line. Yeah, well, it's Fadi and Nadav. And Fadi is a Palestinian man, a Palestinian Christian man, Arab, with a Palestinian identity. And Nadav is a, is a Jewish Israeli. And they find each other and find love in a context that is very fraught because in, in Israel in particular, the pink line is drawn over the green line that separates um, the occupied territories of Palestine from the 1948 boundaries of Israel. And Israel stands accused, very correctly in my view, of pinkwashing its human rights record by being very pro-gay. So Israel takes a very pro-LGBT stance as a way of saying, look how democratic we are, look how modern we are, look how civilized we are, as opposed to those evil, dirty Arabs on the other side of the line. Now, if that's what's happening on the Israeli side, on the Palestinian side, something else is happening. On the Palestinian side, gay and homosexual is becoming increasingly associated with an oppressive colonial West. And there are many, many ways that that happens. So someone like Fadi is, is caught in a, in, in a very difficult cultural political trap. And as somebody who lives in Israel, because his parents were born in Israel, they, they didn't have to flee during the Nakba. He speaks about how he is, how difficult it is to be kind of, uh, valorized or even fetishized as a gay man, but to be treated as a second class citizen, as a Palestinian. And of course, those dynamics manifest themselves in the relationship between Fadi and Nadav. And I track the way um, they manage them and deal with them uh, in, I think, a very beautiful and, and, and productive way as both of them try to find identities that are, are perhaps, um, or that, that, let's say that they strive for identities that are post-nationalist. That's what they strive for, even though... Fadi's Palestinian identity is very important to him, and he was raised with it. Um, he's trying to find an identity that is um, a kind of urban identity that transcends tribe or ethnicity or, or politics. It, of course, he can't. I mean, it's impossible, particularly in an environment like Israel. And I think that's one of the difficulties that, that queer people face everywhere. You know, there are queer people in Russia at the moment who are queer and Russian. And, and very proudly Russian. And, um, you know, to be told that if, if you are openly homosexual, you're a foreign agent, you've kind of somehow been infected or inhabited by the West. I mean, what do you do with that when you are proudly Russian? When you feel yourself to be Russian and you speak Russian and, and go to the Russian Orthodox Church and it's your heritage. Um, so these are pink line identity dilemmas that um, queer people face all over the world in ways that I don't think we really understand enough. You mentioned earlier trans people who seem to bear the brunt of outrage and discrimination, even in countries where there has been progress in gay and lesbian rights. Why do you think trans people are singled out so often? Look, if you go back to the to the very beginning of the anti-gay movement in a country like the United States, it begins with Anita Bryant and Save the Children. We need to protect the ch our children from this evil force that's going to corrupt them and pervert them. 
And what happened very brilliantly, I mean, it was really the Americans who wrote the script for this, is it became a very powerful mobilizing tool for the religious right wing. And um, it, it, it helped um, put Ronald Reagan in power. It helped keep the Bushes in power. And it certainly kept Donald Trump in power. Now, as the 20th century developed and as homosexuality became kind of normalized in so many ways, as, as the gay rights movement was happening in tandem with this religious right movement. So increasingly, you could stand up and preach fire and brimstone against homosexuals in your church, but increasingly there were going to be women in those church whose sons had come out to them or, or men in those church who, who worked with a, with a gay colleague who they really valued or, 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 or people in the, those churches who had, who had lesbian neighbors. And, and so that, um, that campaign was losing its traction. And if you look at, if you look, it's very interesting. If you look at surveys, at opinion surveys in the United States, you'll see that the anti-trans movement began kind of at the very moment that opinion shifted in the United States. A majority opinion shifted uh, towards accepting uh, same-sex marriage and marriage equality. Now, at the same time as, as that was happening, coming on the back of the gay rights movement, a trans movement was coming out. So for the first time, trans people were, were coming out as never before, using the momentum of the gay rights movement, of the gay and lesbian movement. So there was a perfect storm. On the one hand, trans people were more visible than ever before, and particularly young trans people. And on the other hand, the religious right was finding a new target, a new boogeyman, a new way to mobilize people. And Save the Children becomes really powerful again when it's now about saving your children from these trans women who are going to molest them in women's toilets or from this movement, this gender movement that is going to turn boys into girls and girls into boys. So the way we save our children is by keeping these transgender people at bay. And this is really that something, I mean, I have to say that was invented in the West, this, this, this political playbook and, and in the United States particularly even though I think you, you know a little bit of it in, in, in Australia too. And then was, was taken on in other parts of the world, was taken on in Eastern Europe, was taken on in, by Islam. Um, but this notion of, of a political weaponization to save your children against perverts or freaks comes from the American religious right moral majority. What makes it so complicated in our era, as you know in Australia too, is, is that queer people now need to fight this on two flanks. Because there's another, uh, another school of anti-gender movement from the left, which are uh, what you might call um, fourth wave feminists or gender critical feminists, who since the beginning of trans identity have had problems with trans identity, and they believe they need to save children too from transgenderism, from this idea that, um, that gender is a construct, from this idea that biology is a destiny. And that, that I think makes the, the trans debate particularly fraught in countries like Australia or, or the United Kingdom or the United States, the way it has to be fought on those two fronts. Mark, the other wedge that is used is marriage equality. And, you know, if I take the Australian example, 
whilst our marriage equality debate was painful, it was ultimately unifying, whereas there are some countries, um, such as in Asia and Africa, who use marriage equality as a weapon to stop even the most basic rights of decriminalisation or discrimination protections. What is it, do you think, that makes that difference between a country that, you know, adopts this progressive change and what the other that hardens the opposition? Look, I mean, I think that, that that's a wonderful question, and I think there are many components to that, Max. The first component has to do with culture and religion. And you'll find, <laughs> with a couple of really interesting exceptions, that the countries that have embraced marriage equality are countries that are increasingly secular or where organized religion has been discredited. So even in a country like Ireland, which of course is the sort of standout, you know, this country where this supposedly Catholic country where 64% of the population voted in a, in a referendum, a referendum that really inspired your movement in Australia, voted for marriage equality. The mobilizing point, the unifying point, was primarily against the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church that molests children or protects priests that molest children, forces people to give birth to children, even at risk to their own health, and yet doesn't allow two loving, consenting adults to marry. So it was, a, it was the disaffection with the Catholic Church that really drove the marriage equality movement in a profound way in Ireland. Now, in certainly in African countries, the very opposite has happened in terms of organized religion. This is that in recent years, organized religion, and particularly evangelical organized religion, using the American playbook we've already been speaking about, has become stronger. And one of the reasons why it's become stronger is because it inevitably takes it the place, whether it's Islamism or fundamentalist Christianity, it takes the place of the failed state. As the state ceases to function, as the state ceases to provide schooling, food, welfare, care, love, joy, all these things that people need in their lives, the church and the, and the mosque step in. But they step in with this ideology. So more and more people become involved with the church because really, of, of not just spiritual, but material benefits. But those material benefits come at a cost, and one of the costs is, is signing on to the ideology. And, and it's absolutely fascinating to me that um, if, if I look at a country like Nigeria, which has this very sophisticated intellectual population, really it's, it's one of the most um, worldly and sophisticated middle classes in the world, but, but everybody is also a member of a church. And the churches are so rampantly and rapidly homophobic that it's just impossible to come out, even if you are a, a sophisticated, worldly, middle-class professional. I mean, so you can't even think about marriage equality. So that's one reason. And another reason I would add to that is the cynical maneuvers of the homophobic movements in these countries. So if we just stick with Nigeria for a moment, I write in my book about how in the very same year that Britain passed into law its Same-Sex Marriage Act, Nigeria passed a prohibition of Same-Sex Marriage Act, making it illegal even to advocate for Same-Sex Marriage. Now, Nigerians, Nigerian queer people weren't even, I mean, it's not on the agenda there. I mean, sure, they'd like to get married someday. Who wouldn't? Particularly when you go online and you see that people are getting married elsewhere. But really, the, the Nigerian agenda is about 
rights to privacy, privacy, security, and dignity. Nobody's calling it marriage. The opposition, by calling it marriage, set a cat amongst the pigeons. They send that, they, 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 they're, they're, they're blowing a dog whistle. They're saying, if you give these people just the, 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 the minimum rights, the most basic rights, the next thing they're going to be marrying each other in our churches and what's going to happen to our society. And you know what, Matt, what's very complicated is, is that they're not wrong. Rights are rights are rights. And if you start on a journey of, of giving people rights, of acknowledging people's rights to privacy and choice, to freedom and dignity, Somewhere down the line, those rights are going to include, include marriage equality. So it's a fight against time in many respects. Um, but I think what's important to notice is that it's a fight being waged in those countries by the homophobic opponents and not by queer people themselves. You don't really, with a couple of, of, of notable troublesome exceptions, you don't really find queer people fighting for their right to get married in those societies. I write about one of those troublesome exceptions in my book. The transgender woman Tiwonga Chimbalanga from Malawi. I mean, her trouble started in Malawi, which is this, this small uh, Central African country, because she decided to have a public engagement ceremony to her fiance. So she was, in fact, claiming the right to get married when her society didn't, didn't yet kind of see that right as, as being legitimate. And as a result of that, there was a sensational media expose because the, the public engagement ceremony was public. And as a result of that expose, she and her fiancé were, were tried and sentenced to 14 years hard labor for carnal knowledge against the order of nature. Because if they had stayed down the down low, it would have never happened. In fact, the, that, that, that act, which is a, by the way, comes from Australia. It was first um, invented by the Queensland Penal Code. Um, and then moved from Queensland to India and then from India all over the empire and the Commonwealth. But that act, that anti-sodomy act, had never really been used against consenting adults in Malawi. And Pultiwonga and her fiancé put their head above the parapet and said, we want to get married. So it's complicated because you can't, movements can't necessarily control what individuals do. On behalf of all Australians, I apologise. Um, Mark, this, it was actually the British. <laughs> the British, and the British. You've seen all these stories, heard of these stories around the world. Do you have hope? Is it a book of hope? You know, I, I'm writing nonfiction rather than fiction. So I cannot determine how the stories end. The stories end and are ongoing in ways that I didn't expect. And there are not very many happy endings in my book. Sad to say. People get divorced. Um, they go into they go into exile as refugees, and they find that life is actually tougher in Canada than it was in Uganda. That's life. Um, it's a book of hope, in so far as I believe hope resides in the tremendous courage that the people I write about display in their determination to live their lives as they as they believe they are, rather than to succumb to the sociocultural political, religious mores that oppress them. I think that that's incredibly hopeful. But I also think that we have this, this illusion in countries like Australia or the United Kingdom or even South Africa where I live that, you know, as, as Martin Luther King said, the long arc of, of history bends towards justice. Um, I think that it's more complicated. And what I've seen in my research is that it's more of a pendulum 
of action and reaction, of rights claim and then backlash. And I really think that, particularly for those of us who live in countries where there is the kind of freedom that you have, Matt, or that I have, we need to understand that. We need to understand the way that that pendulum swings and how this is by, by no means a sort of clear path to some kind of rainbow emancipation. The book is The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Pink Frontiers. The author is Mark Gavissa, joining us from South Africa. Mark, thank you so much for speaking with us on World Wide Wave. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Thanks for listening to another podcast from World Wide Wave, the show that takes you around the globe one country at a time. World Wide Wave is the international news and current affairs show on Australia's LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. You can listen live every Tuesday night on 94.9 FM in Melbourne and online at joy.org.au. You'll find all our podcasts at joy.org.au slash worldwidewave or follow us on Facebook for the latest international LGBT news. Search W3Joy on Facebook now. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.